0: Luke 24 records Resurrection Sunday. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. They remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. That was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home, marveling at what had happened. Let's pray. Father, as we seek the truth of who you are and what you have done this morning, may we not think Any part of this story is an idle tale. May we not represent the same disbelief that characterized your closest disciples that day. But Father, may we, with all that we have seen, with all that we have heard, with all that we have experienced of your grace, may we marvel, marvel not because... We don't know what happened to the body. But, Father, we marvel because it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. We marvel because while we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive. While we were still citizens of the kingdom of darkness, He transferred us into the kingdom of marvelous light. While we were still living in rebellion, God, you in your spirit called out to us to receive Jesus and to experience our own resurrection from death to life, from a life of sin, a life of condemnation, to a life of eternal hope in you. So, Father, may this morning be defined by eternal hope, by a realization that left to our own devices, we have no hope. And yet, regardless of our circumstances in this life, we have hope for the life to come. Not based on our own actions, not based on our own beliefs, not even based on our own faith, but through the gift of grace that enables faith. Because of your sacrifice, we have hope and we have life. So, God, as you open your word to us this morning, may you present it in its purest form as pure, unadulterated truth. Father, as the kids go and learn upstairs and are encouraged to follow you, to seek you for their own salvation, Father, may you speak through every kid's volunteer. May you use by your spirit every nursery worker. Father, may you speak through me, and may we present the truth of the gospel in such a way that we marvel, not at what happened to the body, but we marvel at the beauty of your grace poured out for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Again, happy Easter, and thank you for joining us. We're going to dismiss the kids a little bit differently this morning, okay, because they're actually going different places. I'm going to introduce the second through fifth graders first. First grade and under, stay put for now, but second through fifth grade, you guys go ahead and start making your way out. And parents, the second through fifth grade this morning are going to our back building, so that's why we're sending the older ones out first. They got farther to go. So after the service, pick up the second through fifth graders in the downstairs at the Family Life Center. You can find them in the youth room. That's where, that's where they're going, okay? We're prepared for a little bit extra um, numbers this morning. Now, I'll dismiss the preschool, preschool, kindergarten, first grade. You guys go ahead and make your way upstairs, and you guys go the normal spot. Don't go to the back building, first grade and down. You go to your normal spot. Parents, you'll find them in their normal spot upstairs in this building. Well, as we gather um, in worship, this season gives us um, the opportunity to have multiple things that we do together together. Um, if you have the, the small bulletin, you can see some information about that. You can get linked to our website. You can see in our weekly email communications different things going on in the life of the church. A couple of things I want you to be aware of in just the next week. Um, this Friday, we have a family s'mores night that anyone is welcome to. Um, you, people, families of all ages are welcome to join us for s'mores. We'll, um, depending on weather, hopefully it will be nice. We'll be out between the buildings and it will just be a fun fellowship event. Saturday morning, um, the 14th, is Saturday morning, we will have um, our n- another men's breakfast. And so men, if you've been to those before, um, we'd love for you to join us. If you haven't been to one of those, it's a great event, and that is this coming Saturday. And then Sunday night of next week, not tonight, but a week from today, we'll start a new Sunday night series during our normal life group, kids ministry, and youth ministry time. On Sunday nights for four Sundays, starting next Sunday, we'll have a focus in on marriage. And we're going to call the series Reimagining Marriage because is one thing that we all know, those of us that are married, is that marriage is hard. It's a challenge. It's a challenge for every person, every personality type, regardless of your upbringing and what family you came from. Marriage is a challenge. but Sometimes we're riddled with low expectations and high expectations in marriage. Sometimes our expectations for marriage are too low. We just think, well, well I'm never going never gonna to get it. Or we think it's too high and it's supposed to be this fairy tale. But we want to see what Scripture says about marriage. We want to invite anyone into this series. It will be four Sunday nights. It will be in our back building there. And so we'd love for you to come. We'd love for you to invite somebody else in as we spend four Sunday nights just talking about. We'll hear some stories, some testimonies from, from other marriages and what people have experienced and learned together we'll hear from the scriptures what God is teaching us about the beauty of his view of marriage. This Sunday night, today, we actually do not have normal programming this Sunday. So no kids ministry, no youth ministry this evening. But turn with me to John chapter 18. It has been said that Pontius Pilate, the governor of the, the Judean province of the Roman Empire in Jesus' day. It has been said that he was a postmodern before postmodernism was even a thing. In ancient Rome, Pilate had a way of thinking, a way of questioning, that revealed a little bit of the spirit of our age. Maybe wasn't a typical way to think or question in his age. But he revealed a a background in the Roman thought, influenced by Greek philosophy and the development of his age, and not so much framed by the Jewish culture of his day. Pilate was a Roman in a place dominated by Jewish culture, but that Jewish culture of his day was under the the influence of this Hellenized Roman culture culture, washing its way in. So Pilate was sort of a weird figure in the crucifixion narrative. You'll see as we'll unpack the person of Pilate today, Pilate has all the control, and yet feels like he has none of the control. Pilate is the judge, and yet Pilate at times feels like a prosecuting attorney, at other times he feels like a defense attorney. Pilate is the, is the appointed judge, governor of a society that had no rights to democratically elect him, and yet he's afraid of his constituents. Pilate is somebody that is open to various different types of belief, and yet closed to a certain spirit of insurrection and rebellion within his province. Because all Pilate cares about, honestly, is just keeping the peace. So word doesn't get to Caesar that Pilate's lost control. But in Pilate's search, there are all these questions where, again, he's the judge, he's the prosecuting attorney, he's the defense attorney, and all these questions that he's asking, you're trying to figure out throughout the narrative, who is Pilate, what's he thinking, and what is this interaction between Jesus and Pilate, where is it going? And at the heart of the person of Pilate is this central question that is a question of our day. Pilate looks at Jesus and asks a bunch of questions, but at the heart of it is this one. What is truth? Pilate does not ask the question, what is true? He asks the question, what is truth? In a bit of a dismissive way, wondering, is it even worth finding out? Is it even worth... Going through the process of researching and evaluating the various truth claims of the chief priest, the Sanhedrin, of Jesus himself, of the crowds that seem to be able to be wrapped up in the spirit and energy of whoever's shouting the, loud, the loudest at the time. Pilate struggles and questions, but not to find the facts of the concrete truth of the matter. But rather, how can even One know the truth. We'll look at John 18. And I want to ask you a question this morning. As we unpack John 18, 28 through following, we'll go into John 19 a little bit. Do you believe in truth? And do you believe in the type of truth that can actually affect your actions? Because Pilate's view of truth is that truth is unattainable you can't really know it's too hard it's too it takes too much time to really figure out who's right in this and all that really matters to Pilate is that Caesar doesn't hear of an uprising in Jerusalem that day so he lets the crowd be the crowd he washes his hands of it and he lets happen what happens the spirit of our age is that truth is unattainable we're overwhelmed with various truth claims often it's hard to know who to believe and who not to believe. We watch media coverage. We, we listen to elected officials. It's hard to know who's telling the truth, who's spinning, and, and where do I find the ultimate reality of what did and did not happen in the world around me. And here we are, a gathering of a couple hundred people in little old Dalton, Georgia, 2,000 years after Jesus stood before the Roman governor to answer a question about truth. And we are all here, I hope, because we believe not just in truth, but we believe that what this word says is true. Because we have no reason to be here without that conviction. If we don't believe that either a story about Jesus is true or not true, If we don't believe there's a way to know that, then then why even bother with this life? We're here this morning, hopefully, because we've made a decision that there's some power in this. There's some reality to this story. There's some measure of truth here that affects everything. And so my question for you is, how has the truth of who Jesus is changed you? And has it actually changed you enough? Perhaps there's some in this room that are still sitting in the place of being unconvinced by this truth, unsure of the resurrection, unsure of the reality of who Jesus, whether he was who he claimed to be or who Scripture presents him as. But there's many in this room that maybe you've settled that fact, but you're still unconvinced or maybe you haven't quite acted on the fullness of the truth that you believe When truth is unattainable, truth is also unactionable. We want to come to a knowledge of the truth, and then we want to do something about it. That's the Christian life. It's not just another truth claim. It's a truth claim that transforms the one who believes. With that in mind, we'll look at John chapter 18. We'll begin in verse 28. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So back up and let's do a little bit of background work here. It was early Friday morning. On Thursday evening, Jesus had gathered in the upper room with his disciples to to celebrate the Passover, to observe the Passover meal in which Jesus taught from the scriptures how the Passover pointed to him. Then, after the Passover, late Thursday evening, they went out into the garden. And in the garden is where Judas brought the soldiers to arrest Jesus. And then, after being arrested, they go to the home of the high priest. And he first is questioned by the high priest. You see Caiaphas mentioned in this passage. They go from the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, to the house of Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the governor. The Caiaphas, the high priest, obviously a Jew, a Jewish leader, the highest authority, the highest human authority in Jewish life in those days. But Pilate was the highest Roman representative in the area. And so the high priest had found that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy, guilty of claiming to be God. And so in a rage, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, the rulers of the temple, The Pharisees, the legalists in the Jewish uh, society of the day, and some other various crowd members, they all got stirred up, they took Jesus, and they brought him to the home of the governor, Pilate. Notice they were outside. As we look at the setting, I want you to think about the, the physical setting of what you see here, okay? So we have a couple of different locations. Number one, this is outside, okay? And this is you people, you two sections right here, you represent the outside. So when Jesus, or when Pilate is outside, I'm going to come over here, I'm going to talk to you about what happened outside. And then over here, this half of the room, you're going to represent what happens inside. Because the location matters here. And it's actually a little bit like a tennis match in John 18. Because it's like Pilate is constantly going from outside to in. And the key figures in the story, Pilate is at the center of this section of scripture. Obviously, Jesus is at the center of all of scripture, you hear that, right? But Pilate is sort of a central figure that at this point is at least in the apparent position of control. It seems like a Pilate is the one that is figuring out what to do in this passage. And he's got this group of people gathered outside in which the chief priests are the loudest, but the crowd goes along with the chief priests, And then you have inside is Jesus, and the soldiers and some other members of of Pilate's court are sitting inside as Jesus is questioned. Who is Pilate? You'll see in this that Pilate is a professional. Pilate is pragmatic. Pilate is a politician. Again, Pilate wasn't democratically elected by the people he governed over. He was appointed by Caesar. But that appointment could change at any minute. The reputation of the region that Pilate governed over was not good in Roman eyes. Ancient Roman um, rulers would refer to Judea and to Israel as, number one, rule, uh, number two, superstitious, because of this Jewish religion that they practiced, and number three, notoriously difficult to govern. And who wants to go there? from the thriving metropolis of Rome to little old Jerusalem out in the boondocks with these superstitious, very religious, conservative Jews. And they were kind of unruly because they didn't believe that Caesar was God, and that framed everything that they did. Every reaction they had to the Roman government was, you guys are against us, and our God is greater than Caesar, and we don't have to listen to you. So there was always the threat of an uprising in Jerusalem. It was not the ideal place to be. But Pilate is a politician. He knows that his career rests in keeping the peace in this region. Jesus had just finished the Passover. Jesus had chosen to be arrested. Jesus, with, with just the words of his mouth, had knocked the soldiers to the ground in earlier in this chapter in John 18. But he still chose to go willingly. He chose to tell Peter to put up the sword. He chose to not fight because he knew what would come that day and he knew the importance of it. So you have Pilate, you have Jesus, you have the crowd led by the high priests and the Pharisees. So look at what happens outside, okay? You're the outside crowd over here. Pilate, Comes to the crowd, or the crowd comes to him, and it's like Pilate is looking over this balcony to this courtyard where there's a large crowd gathered, now early in the morning. So let's add that maybe Pilate's a little bit grumpy at this point because John makes it a point to say early in the morning. I'm going to tell you just an authorship detail, a writing detail of this. John's not going to mention that it's early in the morning unless it was exceptionally early in the morning. It was like uncomfortably early in the morning. That's why John shares that point. And Pilate comes out to this grumpy crowd, what accusation, what did this guy do wrong? And what's the answer? It's actually kind of funny when you think about it. When you read it through fresh eyes, and and we've all heard this story before, right? But when you read it through fresh eyes, sometimes you see things that you haven't seen before. So Pilate asks the simple question, what accusation have you brought against him? And what's the crowd's response? If it wasn't bad, we wouldn't have brought him to you. That's literally the the response. Look, Look at it. Verse 29, what accusation do you bring against this man? Verse 30, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. That's not an answer to the question, right? It's a, well, surely it must be bad for us to get up early in the morning and get this big crowd of people out here, so just trust us, it's bad, Pilate. So then Pilate says, well, if it's so bad, you have some authority the Roman government had given the Jews authority to kind of self-govern. You have authority to punish him. Do it. Leave me alone early in the morning. They said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And Pilate's like, okay, wow, well, this is, this is kind of a big deal then, right? Number one, they haven't given me an accusation. But number two, whatever the accusation is, whatever this guy did, they're convinced he's willing of death. So then Pilate goes inside, Okay. Verse 33, remember you guys are my inside crowd over here. So Pilate entered his headquarters again. This is also his house where he is governing from, where he is ruling over the region. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Where did Pilate get that information from? They didn't tell him that he claimed to be the king, but that's the question he asked to Jesus. Jesus is wondering the same thing. Do you say this, Pilate, of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? See, those people out there, listen, this is the crowd here, right? You're the inside crowd. Those people can't even tell Pilate, the judge, the governor, what he did wrong. So then Pilate has to go to Jesus. Will you, accused person, tell me what you did wrong? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And here's Pilate's question. Pilate said to him, what is truth? So here's the, bl- the play-by-play of what happens inside. Pilate goes to Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds and says, where did you even come up with that? Did somebody tell you I was the king? Who told you I was the king? I didn't tell you that I was the king. Did they tell you I was king? And then, G- then Pilate says, listen, I'm not a Jew. I don't care about Jewish stuff. Just tell me what you did wrong. And Jesus says, as, a, as number one, a confession of who he is, but also number two, a point of, of peacemaking with Pilate. Think about the way Jesus says this. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So what he says in that moment, two things. He says, I am king. My kingdom is not of the world. People that have kingdoms are kings. That's the way the words work. But he also says, My kingdom is not of this world, and I didn't come with swords to overthrow you. Jesus says both at the same time, two things at the same time. Number one, I'm a king and I have royal authority. But number two, I present no physical threat to you or to Caesar right now. And listen, that's all Pilate cared about. Pilate, again, I don't care about the truth. I care about do you pose a physical threat to me? to my soldiers, and to Caesar who can kill me if you do something that overthrows the local government here. That's Pilate's concern. But Jesus is saying, those that know the truth, those that value truth, know the truth of me as a king. But Pilate's response, what is truth, revealed that he is not there to grapple with the hard truths of who Jesus is, of who God is. See, this was the Roman government's approach because they said that Caesar was God, but they knew that Caesar wasn't God in the way that they had understood gods up to that point. They believed both in multiple gods and that Caesar could be God. But they proclaimed Caesar as God simply to say that there is no king but Caesar. We have nobody, there's no other authority but Caesar. But there was still this heritage of of pantheism that believed in in gods of all different polytheism sorry that believed in gods of all different shapes and sizes and so in all of this ideology of the day the only thing that mattered most is Caesar's in charge it doesn't matter who God is it doesn't matter what truth claim you make about God and eternity so long as you bow the knee to Caesar that's what matters and that's what matters to Pilate okay so all this happens inside, right? Pilate reveals, I'm, I don't have time to worry about the truth and the details of all this stuff. He comes back outside. He doesn't like what he hears from Jesus, but he also didn't hear a physical threat from Jesus, didn't hear insurrection, didn't hear, I'm here to overthrow you, and in so doing, overthrow Caesar. So he goes outside. After he said this, he went back outside. This is verse 38. Um, I find no guilt in him. You're the crowd. Pilate, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Again, think closely at what Pilate's doing here. Does he know Jesus' name? I think so. Does he know the accusation against Jesus? Well, at this point... He knows that he's done something, and it involves this claim of Jesus being the king of the Jews. Why does Pilate come outside with an offer of exchange? What is Pilate thinking? Some people read this and say, Pilate didn't want to punish Jesus at this point. Pilate didn't want to do anything to Jesus. But look at Pilate's words. Pilate said, I'm going to release a prisoner to you. Do you want me to release The king of the Jews. If Pilate believed that Jesus was the king of the Jews, he would never have released him. Because that would be insurrection. That would be a problem that Pilate's job is literally to control all other claims to royalty, to the throne, to ruling over that area. That's Pilate's peacekeeping job. Did Pilate believe Jesus was king of the Jews? Certainly not. He didn't even care about the truth five seconds before so why does Pilate come out there and say, crowd, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate presented it in such a way that there's no way the crowd would say, yes, release to us the king of the Jews. Because that crowd had already told him, this guy's a blasphemer, we, we don't believe him, we don't trust him, he's not the king. So Pilate, don't, don't give Pilate too much of a pass here. Pilate knows what he's doing in working a crowd, All politicians do, right? Pilate is working the crowd and he presents Jesus back to them as the king of the Jews and he knows exactly what they're going to say. We don't want the king of the Jews. Instead, they want Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. The word there that gets translated as robber could actually just as easily, it's confusing, ancient languages are confusing sometimes, I get that. But the word for robber actually means one who robs power. He's an insurrectionist. He's a rebellion leader. Barabbas is there because he tried to take control. He's literally the one that Pilate is supposed to stop. Jesus has already said, I pose no physical threat to you. Barabbas historically had posed a physical threat to Roman rule in the area. That's why he was in prison. And the people said, no, give us Barabbas. And so Pilate... Gave, positioned, do you want the king of the Jews or do you want the rebellion leader Barabbas? And they chose Barabbas. So then Pilate goes from outside back to inside, okay? And this time he recognizes they don't want me to just release Jesus, so I'm going to beat him. I'm going to flog him. I'm going to exact physical punishment on him inside. Verse 1 of chapter 19, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. So physical punishment. Maybe that will pacify the crowd. Because Pilate has said, I've got to do something to give the crowd what they want. So then Pilate goes outside. Verse 4. See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Now, again, let's just think about the person of Pilate. Think about the character of this man. He's not guilty. He didn't do anything wrong, but I just beat him for you. Is that a just leader? Is that somebody that you want to trust his word? Pilate, again, he's just working the crowd. He's recognizing that that for him to keep his position, what what matters most is not what he believes, but keeping the crowd at bay. So he beats the guy he knows is guilty. He puts a crown of thorn on him to mock him. In the same way he came out here, do you want me to give you the king of the Jews? He had his soldiers put a crown of thorns on it to pierce into his skin, to cut and tear at his skin so that they could mock him further. Look at your king. Here's your king. Pilate went out again, said to them, verse four, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Verse 8, and when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. One of the things that's interesting that I haven't really noticed before, in verse 7, look at the way they answer him. It's just so, it's evasive, it's cowardly. They know that they want Jesus out. And they're going to find any way to get him out. What's the chapter and verse of this law that they're citing to Pilate in John nineteen seven? they they say, Pilate, you have given us Jews authority to self-govern. Well, we have a law. We're not going to tell you where it is. We're not going to tell you what it is, but we have a law. And this law says that he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Let me tell you, there's no specific law that says that in the Old Testament. And there's a bunch of them. There's a bunch of things that you could do in the Old Covenant that result in punishment. There are multiple things that you do in the Old Covenant that result in the punishment of death. But never is it said, you make yourself the son of God and the result is death. So they're adding to their own law, which the Pharisees were actually kind of comfortable doing, but they were adding to their own law something that wasn't explicitly stated in the law. Blasphemy does have punishment in the Old Covenant law. But this is, he made himself... The Son of God. They're specifically responding to what Jesus is saying. And then Pilate becomes afraid. Because now Pilate, why is Pilate afraid? There's a couple things here. Number one, he recognizes beating this guy isn't enough for the crowd. Remember, all this time, Pilate's just trying to appease the crowd. Beating him isn't enough. Number two, Pilate's recognizing this man is making a claim that's not just the ruler of Judea, of Israel. He's apparently making a claim about deity. And so Pilate recognizes this is far more complicated than I thought it was. So he goes back inside. Again, outside, inside, outside, inside. He goes back inside. He doesn't get what he wants from the crowd. So he goes to Jesus and he says, where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Pilate's next question to Jesus is, You told me that your kingdom is not of this world. They told me you claim to be the Son of God. Where are you from? It's actually in this moment that we hear in Matthew or in Luke. Luke tells a piece of the story that John omits here. It was in this process of the back and forth that when Pilate is asking Jesus where he's from, there's two parts of that question. Number one, he's recognizing this guy's not just claiming to be king of the Jews. He's claiming to be from not this world. He's claiming to be the son of God. But also he recognizes geographically he is from a place, and that place is Galilee. And you know what that means to Pilate? That means there's somebody else that can deal with this guy. Because Herod was the appointed Roman governor of Galilee. Herod, many of his subjects were in Jerusalem at that time for the Passover, so Herod had happened to be staying in Jerusalem. Herod and Pilate were rivals. They didn't like each other to this point. But they decided, that. so Pilate decided, send him to Herod, let Herod deal with him. Herod mocked him, laughed at him and his claims to be king, and Herod sent him right back. And then, for the rest of their days, for the rest of their service and authority over these regions, Herod and Pilate had a good relationship because of that day, where they together mocked the Son of God. But John is exposing that Pilate's question is not just about whether he's from Jerusalem or Galilee, but whether he's from this world, or some other world, he's asking a question again, of ultimate truth. Like, I told you a second ago, I don't care about truth, but now my head hurts because you're claiming to be the king of the Jews, and they're telling me you claim to be the Son of the God, uh, the Son of God, and they're quoting laws I don't understand, and I just want this whole thing to go away. So tell me where you're from. Tell me what is going on here. And you see the desperation in Pilate starting to build. He's asking the crowd questions. He's asking Jesus questions. They can't, Jesus is not standing against his accuser, right? Jesus is at times being defended by Pilate. Pilate, the defense attorney, crowd, I see no guilt in him. But at other times, Pilate's inside prosecuting Jesus. And and Pilate is also the one that has the role of judge in this. Matthew, again, we have four gospels that tell this story. And each has different elements, but they flow together. And and John 19 is telling the story of Pilate going back and forth. John's really highlighting Pilate. Matthew highlights in this story Pilate's wife, who never shows up in John. But Matthew has this added tidbit that at some point during this interaction, as Pilate was going outside to the crowd, inside to Jesus, Pilate's wife sends word to him and says, leave that guy alone. She says, her exact words, have nothing to do with that righteous man because I was tormented in my dreams last night thinking of what would happen. He, she knew, she knew that this guy was righteous, Jesus. And she had been warned in a dream that he was righteous, that he didn't need to be punished, that he didn't need to be put to death. So she sent word to her husband, you don't want to mess with this guy. But Pilate, the only answer Pilate gets from Jesus is I have authority, you don't. And the only authority you have, Pilate, is the authority that God is granting you. I mean, think think about verse 11. If you're a ruling authority and somebody says verse 11 to you, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. But don't worry. Those that gave me over to you, they'll be held most accountable for this whole thing. Again, Pilate, his head had to hurt at this point. He's trying to figure out Jewish law, Jewish religion, the, the governing structures of Rome. He's trying to figure out all this stuff. Who has jurisdiction? What am I supposed to do? Do I kill him? Do I beat him? Beating him's not enough. What am I supposed to do here? His wife, doesn't, his wife said, just let the guy go. And Pilate knows that's not an option. Why? Because the goal is appease the crowd. The goal is Caesar never hears this story. The goal is Caesar has no idea what's going on today. Because when Caesar knows, Caesar's going to act. Verse 12. Outside again, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Again, that's what what Pilate cares about, it's Caesar. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. And sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone payment and in an Aramaic Gabbatha. So now Jesus finally gets to stand in front of his accusers. Pilate's been playing this back and forth game. Now Jesus comes out and, and now Pilate is seated at the public judgment seat in front of the crowd. And Jesus is there. It was the Passover. Or it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was the sixth hour. So this is Friday. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. Brings Jesus out. Behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Matthew adds to the detail that in this interaction is when Pilate came out publicly and he washed his hands in front of the crowd and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Of course, legally they couldn't. He had to be the one to issue the condemnation, to issue the sentence of crucify him. But the chief priests had stirred up the crowd. Notice there's multiple times in John 18 and 19 that you see the crowd speaking, but the worst, the worst quotations are always the chief priest said. I'll prove it. Look at, look at this verse 15. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate says. And the chief priest answered with blasphemy. Blasphemy. I told you that in the old covenant, there's not a law that says, if you claim to be the son of man, you can be put to death. But there is a law that says, if you blaspheme Yahweh, the one true king, you can be put to death. And that's what the chief priests do. The spiritual authority over the nation, over the Jews, over the, the religion, the sacrificial system, those that had all the authority said, we have no king but Caesar. And that's a slap in the face to Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had rescued them from the nation of Egypt who they were about to worship and proclaim Yahweh's kingship through the Passover dinner. And they had done all that very week. They had claimed, Yahweh is our king. Yahweh is our king. And then, when they wanted to get political gain and get Jesus out of the picture, they said, we have no king but Caesar. Blasphemy. And the crowd just went along with it. Crucify him. Crucify him. We're here to worship and serve Caesar. And the chief police end this story with blasphemy. So I got a question for you. Is it true? All of this that Pilate couldn't decide on, that the Jews just got stirred up with the emotion of the day, and this, this group think mindset, they just all went along and said, No, we're not going to worship Jesus, the King of the Jews. We're not going to worship Jesus, the Son of God. We're here for Caesar and Caesar alone because this man is so evil. We can't tell you exactly what he did, but it's really, really bad, Pilate. Is that story true? Let's skip ahead a little bit. Let's let's, let's ask, is, is, is this true? John 20, we see that The resurrection happens. The the women, they go the first day of of the week. They go Sunday. So all this happened on Friday. On Sunday, there's a group of women that go to the tomb. They go to anoint a dead body so that the dead body doesn't smell bad because they expect to find a dead body. And then disciples marvel in unbelief because the women couldn't find the dead body. And the disciples run to see where the dead body is. And there's no body. And then all of a sudden they see the risen Jesus. They're stunned. They're amazed. But they're also transformed. Here's where I want to leave you today. If you believe it's true, don't just sit there like you always have. If you believe that this story really is true, then don't be Pilate. Be like, well, maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. Don't, Don't be like the disciples of, Always questioning, always doubting. Be like the disciples who saw Jesus face to face. Figure out what's true. And if it's true, do something about it. Tell someone about it. Truth transforms. Jesus said that. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Truth can take you from a place of captivity and bring you to a place of freedom. But you've got to decide there's two questions you got to decide, does truth exist? Can I know that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God? Or is that just something so complex, so philosophical, that nobody can really understand who God is because the world is just so complex? Can you understand? Can you, can you know truth or not? That's your first question. Your second question is, if I can know that truth is truth and that lie is lie, then is what the Bible says about Jesus' truth? Is what John says about Jesus true. Do I trust this eyewitness account? And if you do, then it's time for your life to change. And I say that to, to people that are not believers right now, and I say that to people that have been following Christ for 60 years. If you believe it's true, it's time for your life to change today. Because every single one of us, if we're still sitting here on this earth, we haven't arrived, we haven't reached full completion. We can all go deeper in discipleship and deeper in obedience. So for every single one of us, it's how does the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of the resurrection transform me in a deeper way today and then compel me to move forward, to stand for truth in an age that doesn't honor truth, to stand for righteousness in an age where sin is tolerated, to stand for Jesus in an age that says you can believe anything as long as it's not exclusive. Will we stand for who he is and what he has done? The crowd was outside. Jesus was inside. Do you know why? Did you catch that in the story? Because there's another beauty here in the passage. There's something that's super easy to miss. The crowd was outside because Pilate wasn't a Jew. Pilate was a Roman. Pilate was a pagan. Pilate would profane them. Because it's not just a a legal office that they're at. They're at Pilate's home. Jews, if they entered into the home of a non-Jew, they would consider that home profane. That home would make them unclean. And so the crowd stays outside, according to this passage, because they don't want to enter into Pilate's home, because if they entered into Pilate's home, they couldn't celebrate the Passover the next day. So they stayed outside, and Pilate just tolerated them. But who went inside? The Son of God goes inside. The one who who wrote the book goes inside. The one who defines what is profane and what is holy the one who defines what is righteous and what is unrighteous. Hebrews says this about Jesus. Hebrews says that Jesus, the beauty of Jesus as the high priest is that Jesus could enter into the holy places, the tabernacle, the temple, that had this place where God's God's presence would come down. And only the high priest, only once a year, only after special ritual cleaning, and when God said it was okay, could the high priest, one person, enter into the presence of God. And Jesus, Jesus just walked right in, without any ritual cleaning, because he was able to enter into the holiest places. There's a beauty there. But you know, the one who is qualified to enter the holiest places can also enter the profane place. Pilate's house, the house of unrighteousness, the house of dirty sin, the house of disobedience to God, Jesus enters into those places too. And what's the power there? Because that's the gospel. Because the God of righteousness, the God who is qualified to be holy and and in his holiness, we should respond in nothing but adoration, in nothing but worship and giving him the glory for every second of every day of our lives. He enters into the profane. Because Jesus is not just righteous enough to be qualified to enter into the holy places. Jesus is righteous enough to make the unrighteous righteous. That's that's the beauty. That's that peace. That's why Jesus gets to enter into the pagan home. And he's not worried about the Passover. Number one, Jesus ate the Passover early. Did you ever notice that in the story? Jesus didn't eat the Passover meal on Saturday like he was supposed to. Jesus, who rewrote the story of the Passover for his followers the night before, said, we're not going to do it on Saturday, we're going to do it on Thursday. Apparently they didn't question that. We don't really know why they did it on Thursday. They just did. But Jesus said, yeah, I can walk right into Pilate's house. I can make the unclean clean. And it's the same thing that he says to each of us. That Jesus doesn't stand far off in his holiness and in his righteousness and say, here, I'm going to erect some obstacles. There's a hurdle. If you want to follow me, you jump that. You jump that, then you can follow. Clean yourself up, figure your stuff out, figure your life out. I'll be over here waiting in my holiness and in my righteousness for you. It's not, that's not the gospel. Jesus, the Holy One, enters into the mess, enters into the uncleanness, enters into the lives of the unrighteous, and says, Here, come with me. I'll rescue you from this kingdom, I'll rescue you from this sin. I will make you new. You just got to come. And then Jesus holds on. He holds us. The choir can start coming up now. For each one of us, I told you, truth is meant to transform. So here's your question. Has this truth, the cross and the empty tomb, has it really transformed you? And is there, some, is there another step to take? Is there a place that you can go deeper in the path of following Jesus today? The altar is open for everyone who wants to take a step. And maybe as the choir sings, the step you need to take is a step to come and find me and say, I've never trusted in Jesus before, and it's time. It's time to allow Jesus into my place of unrighteousness to make me clean or maybe you've been following Jesus for a number of years and you just need to come to the altar to pray to ask for his wisdom and his guidance because you want to go deeper maybe you need to grab somebody else in the room and say I need to go deeper I need to see in a greater measure what it means to follow Jesus but the message of Easter the message of the empty tomb that all the disciples marveled at because they couldn't understand It's a message that transforms. So don't leave here this morning without taking a step of response to the truth that you've heard. As the the choir sings, they're going to lead us in another song, a song of great comfort to those who believe. A song that tells us that trials are going to come, that pain is going to come, but Christ, who pulled us up out of the mess, he doesn't let go of your hand. He pulls you out of your unrighteousness and out of your sin, and he holds on until he brings you in fullness into the kingdom of his Father. As they sing, I'd encourage you to worship as you see fit. As I said, the altar's open. You can stand and sing. It's a new one, but you'll pick up on the words quickly, and it's a beautiful one. Stand and sing, or sit and reflect. But above all else, allow the Spirit,